This is a case from Iron Lute, the collection of koans. I don't usually use talks, but uh, this case seemed very fitting to what I want to talk about today. Jefeng cuts trees. Jefeng went to the forest to cut trees with his disciple, Chang Shen. Do not stop until your axe cuts the very center of the tree, warned the teacher. I have cut it, the disciple replied. The old masters transmitted the teaching to their disciples from hall to hall, Jefeng continued. How about your own case? Chang Shen threw his axe to the ground, saying, Transmitted. <laughs> The teacher took up his walking stick and struck his beloved disciple. In Yogan's comment, monks are real co-workers, whether meditating in the zendo or working together at daily tasks. There is no doubt these two were carrying the lamp of Dharma. Many Occidentals seek truth visiting philosophy classes or studying meditation under oriental teachers. But how many of them, how many of them, cut the tree to the center? They often scratch the bog and wait for someone else to split the trunk for them. What molecules? Chang attained his Zen before his teacher finished speaking. Zhe Feng was pleased. But, what, but after the monk had thrown his axe to the ground, why did he say transmitted? He deserved his teacher's blow. Genro said, Changsheng had a good axe, sharp enough to split the trunk in two with one single stroke. Zhefeng used his walking stick to sharpen the edge. So, in two weeks, we are entering a new angle, fall angle. It seems that we just ended the spring angle. It seems it was just yesterday. Went by very fast. And sometimes the, the gaps between angles seem almost like non-existent. And, and it happens with everything that we do on some regular basis, it loses its power or we lose the purpose of doing it. Right? So we, we go from anger to anger and okay, I gotta do this again. I have a form to fill out, I'll fill it out, I know what I'm writing, I'm just gonna write pretty much what I wrote last time, work on pretty much what I worked on last time, and maybe hope to do better this time. So we have to look at it and we have to examine, you know, are we really practicing angle correctly? Are we 
Are we using that time in order to deepen our practice? Or we just do it because it's what's been, it's what's been done all these years and we're just going to do it because everybody else is doing it. That happens too. Now, traditionally, we, we encourage each student to to take on a challenge or challenges that have to do with our personal issues or, or personal knots that we have to untie. And then during that time, during that period, work on it individually. And it's very important to, to do it that way. But when we, when we focus just on that, are we not missing something? When we focus only on our own little issues, important, but in the big scheme of things, not as important as we make them. And I think that sometimes practicing this way can make us a little self-centered, a little too self-concerned if we only practice this way, if we only look at an angle as an opportunity to untie some old knots, to create some flow in what's been stagnant all these years. Important, but not just that. Not just that. You know, Ango, Ango is meant to be a period in which we increase the level of commitment to Zen practice. We face and go into deeper aspects of our personal resistance, maybe to the practice, not just personal resistance with everyday life, what we call everyday life. Maybe the practice itself is also something we partially embrace and partially resist. So we have to ask, are we, am I, fully embracing the practice? And if I am, or if I think I'm fully embracing the practice, what does it mean? How do I fully embrace the practice? Am I doing it? Or am I just convincing myself that I'm practicing correctly? It's a time for us to, to deepen and to broaden the understanding of our true nature. That's what the practice is about to deepen the understanding of who we are, to learn about this one here. But not just to learn about how I untie knots and, and create flow in my own personal realm. It's really to know who I am before I was born. To go way beyond the way the, the knots appear in my daily life while I am working on the daily knots. We're not rejecting anything in that. We're just broadening the scope of practice. Broadening the way we work with angle.
And it's not a small task. It's not something we should take lightly. We should treat it with respect, with reverence, with intention. We should see every time we go into an ango as, as if it is, and it is the first time we are doing it. We should not drag old ways of doing things into something new. As much as tempting as it is. So, while we are addressing all knots, while we are working with habits, at that same time, we should harness all aspects of practice, all aspects of practice, and then use the practice, maybe the word use is not that appropriate, we should apply the practice fully to working on what we need to work on. So, while we are addressing what needs to be addressed, we are also deepening our understanding of practice. While we're doing that, we're not rejecting anything. We're not picking and choosing. And I think we do pick and choose. I remember a story about this years ago, this teacher, this great Aikido teacher, who, who in the middle of class, he stopped and he told a story about a person who, in, while he was teaching, he was doing a technique, and she said, oh, I don't do that technique. And he started to laugh. I mean, it was actually very funny, because he started to laugh, you know, and then he didn't say much more about it, but he started to laugh, and his laugh said everything. What do you mean you don't do that technique? What does it mean, I don't do this? Well, why are you practicing? What's the point of practice if we pick and choose? You know, if, if we are practicing a tradition that is designed to break down the, the, the structure. It's designed to, to reconstruct who we are, who we think we are. So yes, it, it makes sense that you know, while we do that, we're going to experience resistance. But it also makes sense that while we're experiencing resistance, we're going to work on the resistance rather than try to keep the resistance alive by saying, I don't do this. You know, that, that's, that will not be practicing correctly. Whatever it is we're practicing, Aikido, Zen, or whatever. If we're practicing, we have to really practice. Or at least admit, not really practicing, because that will help. And we each we each deal with a unique set of circumstances, right? They're very unique, and they seem to be self-sustained by our personal past, right? Because it is the past that is keeping the. Well, it feels like the past is keeping the pain alive, the difficulties, the challenges, the knots. But I think that often, because of the personal nature of our lives, we tend to overlook the universal aspect of our experiences. And they, they do have universal aspect, because we all feel, experience difficulties, and it's just that we experience them in a very unique way. 
but the uniqueness doesn't make it separated from the rest of the world. We're not that special in that. So we have to bring perspective to the way we are working with personal challenges. Twenty-five hundred years ago, the Buddha realized this universality after years and years of dedicated and relentless investigation of the human condition. He then outlined his realization through the Four Noble Truths, offered the Eightfold Path as a practical guidelines to follow, and then put together a set of universal precepts that reflect the way realization manifests in everyday life. Buddhism 101, basics. Right? These are the basic tenets of this practice tradition that we are upholding. Or at least we say we are upholding, but this is what Buddhism is, or this is how Buddhism is practiced. That came out of his, immediately out of his realization. Which really wasn't his realization, it was just a realization. That all things are one, that all things potentially have an ability to awaken to this universal understanding. All things, I and all beings, are the awakened ones to thusness, he said. At the same time, he also said, at the same time that I am awakened, everything else is awakened to that reality. Those are the first words he uttered, he, the Buddha. And the entire teachings are there. Everything is there. From there, of course, he went on to talk and talk and talk and talk and explain and break down and try to help many people using that teaching. But again, it's all there. It's all inherently in this first statement. And then explained and outlined through the Four Noble Truths truth and the Eightfold Path. So, are we looking at that? Are we going back to these basic teachings and to look for ways to keep it alive through our personal experiences in our That would be a good anger focus, right? Not just to work on one specific thing, but to work on one specific thing while applying the basics of Buddhism, while practicing correctly, while seeing that the statement, his first statement, life is suffering, is something we experience. Also, while understanding that we suffer because we attach. Life is suffering is not an issue, it's a realization. We suffer because we attach. And there is a way to relieve ourselves from suffering.
and then the Eightfold Path. And from that, the precepts. It's all together. So we can pick and choose. I would like, I would like to focus on the first and the sixth and the eighth of the Eightfold Path. Someone else may like other points. But it's not in question. It's not, nobody's asking, what would you like to practice? It's not in question. If we are practitioners of the way. So these are the basic tenets of, of our practice tradition, which over the years, and you know, through the influence of different cultures, naturally have morphed into various styles of practice. That makes sense, right? As the practice traveled right, over the world and over the centuries, its appearances took on flavors and traditions of the people who chose to embrace it. As in the case of Zen, it originated in China through the encounter of Buddhism and Taoism and then, then developed and shaped by Chinese culture. Later on, was reshaped by the Japanese culture and, in our case, shaped by our Western culture. It's being shaped by, as we speak. And even so, throughout all these years and all the changes Buddhism went through, the Buddha's realization and the subsequent teachings were never lost. Put on different jackets, different hats. But if the essence was not there, we would not be practicing Buddhism. We are still practicing the Buddha's realization. I think once in a while we may need to be reminded that by joining a Zen Sangha, we become a living link of this practice tradition. And so we have the responsibility to uphold and embrace it fully. Right? The path that the Buddha outlined is both the path to awakening and the path of awakening. If we don't practice realization, we're not going to become realized at a later time. In the same way that if we don't practice peace, we're not going to experience peace at a later time. And that is the responsibility. So we have to address all aspects of practice and view them equally as important rather than pick and choose based on personal preferences. We're dealing with a tremendous force of habit that is essentially feeding the three poisons, which again were outlined in the practice. Greed, anger, and ignorance. We, we chant that every time we see it. Greed, anger, and ignorance. Right? And we are active participants in a practice tradition that was formulated to bring human beings to realization. So why wouldn't we embrace it fully? Why would we get busy in picking and choosing? The Buddha, Buddha Dhamma talked about it and he described the Buddha's practice as an example. And he said, when the Buddha was cultivating the seed of enlightenment, as we are doing now, cultivating the seed of enlightenment, he said, 
it was to encounter the three poisons that he made his three vows. Practicing moral prohibitions to, to counter the poison of greed, he vowed to put an end to all evils. Moral prohibitions. Then, practicing meditation to counter the poison of anger, he vowed to cultivate all virtues. And the third one, and practicing wisdom to counter the poison of delusion, he vowed to liberate all beings. Because he persevered in these three pure practices of morality, meditation, and wisdom, he was able to overcome the three poisons and reach enlightenment. By overcoming the three poisons, he wiped out everything sinful and thus put an end to evil. By observing the three sets of precepts, he did nothing but good and thus cultivated virtue. And by putting an end to evil and cultivating virtue, he consummated all practices, benefited himself as well as others, and rescued mortals everywhere. Still is. Thus he liberated beings. And the three sets of precepts mentioned here are I vow to put an end to all evils, I vow to cultivate all virtues, and I vow to liberate all beings. This is what we're practicing. Morality, meditation, wisdom. Sila, jhana, and prajna. Well, that's what we ought to practice. Bodhidharma continued, and he said, you should realize that the practice you cultivate doesn't exist apart from your mind. If your mind is pure, all Buddha lands are pure. The sutras say, if their minds are impure, beings are impure. If their minds are pure, beings are pure. And to reach a Buddha land, purify your mind. As your mind becomes pure, Buddha lands become pure. This is the Buddha land. There is no other. Thus, by overcoming the three poisoned states of mind, and the three sets of precepts are automatically fulfilled at that same time. Now, there's a question here, and uh, part of, I don't know if you've read that, but part of the uh, recorded sayings of Bodhidharma involve question, and then he answers it. So, it is not that there is a questionnaire there, it's just that there is a question in order to illuminate. It's one way of writing. So, it's a question. But the sutras say that the six paramitas are charity, morality, patience, devotion, meditation, and wisdom. Now you say that the paramitas refer to purification of the senses. What do you mean by that? And why are they called fairies? So, Bodhidharma says, Cultivating the paramitas means purifying the six senses by overcoming the six thieves. Casting out the thief of the eye by abandoning the visual world is charity. It's interesting how it connects everyday practice with fundamental Buddhist principles. <coughs> right? The six thieves. We talk often. We talk often about the six thieves, the six senses. So, to cast the, the thief of the eye is to abandon the visual world. That's charity, he says. 
Keeping out the thief of the ear by not listening to sounds is morality. Well, it's not really by not listening, it's by not taking what we hear so seriously. Or by not taking what we think so seriously, too. Those are the gateways to heaven and to hell. Humbling the thief of the nose by equating all smells as neutral is patience. Controlling the thief of the mouth by conquering desires to taste and praise is devotion. Quelling the thief of the body, thief of the body, by remaining unmoved by sensation of touch is meditation. And taming the thief of the mind by not yielding to delusions, but practicing wakefulness is wisdom. The six parameters are transports, like boats or rafts. They transport beings to the other shore. Hence, they're called fairies. And here we might add that this shore is the other. So what we need to be ferried to is here. What we need to be ferried from is also here. Again, heaven and hell. Maybe we should ask, what do we choose there, right? Maybe there we should make a choice. I choose to see this as heaven. I choose to practice being in heaven. It changes everything. There's no doubt. But it requires choice. Making the choice, it requires focus, intention, or intentional energy. requires rousing, unflinching determination. So Bodhidharma here is elucidating the basic teachings of the Buddha. And he's laying out, he's laying it out in a practical way that is available to all who choose to embrace their practice fully. Which is us, isn't it? Some may believe that this kind of devotion is reserved to people who choose to live in a monastery. But I think that this way of thinking is just another way we sabotage our potential to awaken. Or maybe another way to justify laziness. You know, how do I practice like that in the middle of everything I'm dealing with? You know, I'm not a part of a a practice center in a way that I am there all the time. I come in and out. Right? I go back to maybe what I call the chaos of my everyday life. And I come into the center to get some peace and quiet and then go back to the chaos. Maybe sometimes we think this way. And Bodhidharma commented on that 
and said, what you call a monastery, we call a place of purity. But whoever denies the entry, denies entry to the three poisons, right, entry to the three poisons, and keeps the gate of his senses pure, his body and mind still, inside and out, clean, builds a monastery, right? If you practice this way, you become the monastery. There's a very big difference from the way we think about this. It's not a place. It's a being. Or a state of being. And he said, those who seek enlightenment regard their bodies as the furnace, the Dharma as the fire, wisdom as the craftsmanship, craftsmanship, and the three sets of precepts and six paramitas as the mold. They smelt and refine the true Buddha nature within themselves and pour it into the mold formed by the rules of discipline. It's a beautiful way of describing it. Also, describing it this way opens it up to everybody, regardless of where you are, what your life circumstances are, what happened up to this moment. This is transcending all that and going to the root, to the source. And it's showing you, showing us that we have what it takes. It's showing us that we mess it up. But we can only also clean it up. Not what was, what is. The mess you created was messy. But this can be purified. At all times, at any given time if you choose so. If you choose to practice correctly, if you choose to work on it. He said, acting in perfect accordance with the Buddha's teaching, they, those who choose to practice, they naturally create a perfect likeness. Likeness with, not the Buddha, but the Buddha nature. Alignment with reality. Likeness maybe uh, confusing a little bit because we don't have to become anybody else. We have to align with who we are and the likeness here is referring to that. The eternal sublime body isn't subject to conditions or decay. If you seek the truth but don't learn how to make a true likeness or how to align yourself, what will you use in its place? What else would you do? What else would you practice? if not alignment, if not merging and harmonizing, if not realizing that what we need to practice is just who we are and not invent anything in its place, then we end up practicing what we invent. And that's what he's referring to. What else would you use in its place? He's telling you, he's telling us, you are using something made up. You're holding on to what you think you are for whatever reason. I mean, there are many reasons we do that, but that's not the point of this uh, Tesho. The point is we're doing it. So we have to recognize. And then, do something else. 
But to practice correctly means to have no divisions between <clears throat> monastic and lay, delusion and enlightenment, holy and ordinary, good and bad, likes and dislikes. It also means no separation between the you that is before taking the vows, right, when we look at precepts, is there is a you that maybe is there before you plan to take the vows at a later time, or maybe there is the you that was before you took the vows, if you went through Jukai study. So not to separate between the before and the after, the one who is making commitments and the one who did not make commitments yet. To practice as if there is no other way to practice. So it means for all of us, and if you don't have a copy of the precepts, I will gladly email everyone a copy of the precepts. Because we all need to practice the precepts. We all need to dive into and delve into the Four Noble Truths through the Eightfold Path and the precepts. And examine, am I practicing it? Maybe we don't want to, maybe some of us don't want to take Jukai because we think, well, I'm not ready for that. But if we're not ready for that, are we ready for practice? What are we ready for? What are we doing here? What are we doing with our zazen? So for this coming angle, which is in only two weeks, I, want, I would like each one of us to examine the level of personal commitment and devotion to the practice we, we carry. To examine. Not to, not to judge, but to examine. Not to feel good or bad about it. Not to fault ourselves or others. Just to examine, to be honest. Am I fully embracing it? Or am I picking and choosing? And then, I would encourage you and ask you to partake fully. To partake fully in what is being offered as Dharma teachings. Which is always offered. I'm not just referring to coming here to a center. There's always Dharma teachings all around us. But we have to choose to partake, to participate. So this time around, this anger, along with the personal anger commitments you are planning to work on, I would like you to include the following. To increase the sitting time at home. Take these three months to focus on increasing and maintaining longer zazen periods. To show up more often at the zendo, we sit here six days a week. 
show up more often. Push the envelope. You know, in, in this con I, I began with, I, I brought up here, he said, many practice, but how many of them cut the tree to the center? Many practice. There are many practitioners. But how many are truly devoted and dedicated how many practice wholeheartedly? Well, how many doesn't matter? Do you practice wholeheartedly? That's all that matters. Do you practice with honesty, sincerity? So we push the envelope to push ourselves. We have to do that. If we don't do it, we are stagnant. If we're not pushing, if we're not going further, if we're not going forward, we're going backwards. If we're not progressing, we are regressing. Because the habits are always lurking in the background, waiting. Waiting for you to get drowsy. And as soon as you get drowsy, it jumps on you and takes over. So to show up more often means to push the envelope, means to do what you don't feel like doing. It means to mess with your schedule. To mess with the habits, essentially. Liturgy. We're going to uh, incorporate liturgy on a more regular weekly basis. So we are going to, starting in two weeks, we are going to begin sitting, begin, uh, well, meet at 8.30 on Sunday mornings. So we have enough time to do liturgy every Sunday. And we're going to begin that after our Zazenkai in two weeks. So it will be offered, but for you to partake, you have to show up. Become interested in liturgy. We chant, not just that we chant the teachings. The, the chanting itself is what we practice. So dive into it, even if you have some resistance. Still, dive into it, explore it, ask questions. Study what we chant. And when you chant, lose yourself into the chanting. Lose the commentator. Or ask the commentator to join in. One voice of many flavors. One voice together. It's part of the practice. Also, dedicate some time to reading. Right? I can email you a list of books that are essential for practice. And I can also guide you specifically based on our discussions. Based on what you have read until now. And also based on what I feel 
will be beneficial to you personally. But ask. Don't wait for it to be. Don't wait to be spoon-fed. Take responsibility. Take charge for your practice. Take charge for your own awakening. It will not be given from another. This is why he described it in the commentary that some people walk a little bit and then wait for somebody else to, or they cut through the bog and they wait for somebody else to split the wood for them. Well, nobody will do it for you. And if anybody offers ever to do it for you, send them away. Right away, tell them no. I am not going to allow you to rob me of my practice. Because it is robbery. We are responsible for our own salvation. So reading, dedicate some time to reading. Also commit to Zazenkais and we have a full session during this angle. Commit to that. With or without the resistance. Simply commit, show up, practice. And deepen Koan study. Deepen Koan study. You should harass me telling me, I have an answer to the Koan. When can we meet? <laughs> That's great. I want to hear that. Don't show up and say, that, well, I'm working on it. Go back to the cushion. Work on it. Bring something, bring some kind of expression with you. Try. But try, but keep trying. And read, don't just read about the koan. You know, in the, in the Zen Heritage book, Ferguson's book, there's a lot of great stories there, biographies of the teachers. And I always encourage you to you know, when you, when you walk on a con, don't just walk on a con. Read about the teachers. Read about their background. Read about their difficulties before they became teachers. It's there. It's all there. Available to us. We just have to be let, less lazy and more diligent. And open up the book and read. Oh yeah, this is good. And when you start reading, all of a sudden, those words are not as foreign. All of a sudden, something in you is responding to those words. And then you realize, this did not happen 1,200 years ago. This is happening now. I am the Koan. These teachers are alive. And the Dharma is alive. But we got to push. We have to push ourselves. No stagnation. No stagnation. Every time you feel like things are starting to smell, stink, you know that you've been sitting around too long. Get moving. Get going. Push yourself. Stagnant water stinks. What's next? What do I do? 
How do I practice? How do I deepen? If you don't know how to deepen, ask me. I'll tell you. But you have to be willing to listen. Because I'm not going to tell you what you want to hear. In fact, I may tell you exactly what you don't want to hear. If you want a teacher, you have to be willing to be a student. If you if you're willing to be a student, I am willing to be a teacher. But you have to listen, not argue, not complain. Just listen, take it in, and see what happens. See where it takes you. See how it deepens. Embrace it. So let's seal this with this question. Yogen Sezaki's question. He asked, how many of them cut the tree to the center? Thank you.